Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I work here at the Cato Institute. Uh, among other things, I'm the head of the Cato Institute Press. And today, we're very happy to have uh, our author, John Rauch, here to celebrate uh, an expanded edition of his book, Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought, on the occasion of the 20th anniversary of its publication. Uh, Kindly Inquisitors has had a distinguished history. We were noting before and coming down here in the green room that, you know, it's very few books that actually uh, survive after 20 years and stay in print. And John's book has done more than that. It has, in fact, had a surprisingly striking influence, I think, uh, on uh, the debate in this area that we will uh, consider today, the debate about free speech on campus and related issues. I begin by saying you can buy a copy of Kindly Inquisitors, of the, edition, the initial edition, outside. Today, we are also having and offering, however, the ebook version, which is the expanded edition. It is the second edition, as it were. Uh, we have a, outside a flyer that you can pick up and order uh, at a discount the, the new ebook, which contains a preface by George Will, but also an afterword by John, which I must say I really found to be a striking and very uh, fine piece of work, one that actually affected my own thinking about a particular uh, issue that I was dealing with at the time regarding free speech and, uh, and another book. And in other words, John's done a very, it's not just a, the usual thing that you get in the second edition. It's, a, it's independently good and a very fine piece of work that I think you may want to get, and you can do it by ordering online with this flyer. But today we want to talk about that new edition, and we have John and two commentators to that end. Um, we will, uh, before I start with some introductions, let me mention some administrative details, if you haven't been to Cato before. We will have our event from now until about 1.30 or so. For the next hour or so, we will have our initial presentations by the author and two commentators. And then we will go for about a half hour of question and answer. Uh, thereafter, at about 1.30 or so, we shall decamp upstairs where you can buy books, have the author sign your books uh, of the, the initial edition, and uh, generally have lunch. So I will be back with more information on that later uh, in our uh, event. John Rauch is a guest scholar at Brookings Institution here in Washington. He is the author of uh, six books and many articles on a wide range of issues. John is a wide ranging uh, uh, writer, unlike many people here in Washington who often, uh, like myself, have uh, specialized. He has written on public policy, culture, and government. He is a contributing editor to National Journal and The Atlantic and recipient of the 2005 National Magazine Award, the magazine industry's equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. In 2013, he published a Denial, My 25 Years Without a Soul, a memoir of his struggle with his sexuality brought, about as an e brought out as an e-book from Atlantic. It was a very interesting book. It was also an experiment in publication, getting at the avant-garde, as it were, of publishing uh, in an electronic form. His previous book was Gay Marriage, Why is Good for Gays, Good for Straits, and Good for America, which appeared with Henry Holt. And he has written, as I said, very broadly on public policy issues, uh, including adultery, agriculture, economics, gay marriage, height discrimination, biological rhythms, 
number inflation, and animal rights. And I remember myself, that's not mentioned here, a remarkable article about how we were unlikely perhaps to run out of oil because of uh, John going down into the earth uh, in a computer format to look for more oil. So all of you probably have your John memories like that, some of his articles that had uh, a memorable effect on you. In 1993, kindly inquisitors appeared, and I have to say at this point, you know, uh, my boss, David Bowes, who could not be with, here, with us here today, had some speaking engagements out of uh, the district. Uh, David Bowes was essential, I think, in bringing this book. This was a Cato Institute book that appeared with the University of Chicago Press. And I have to say, this was a remarkable judgment on David's part, and one that uh, Cato has had real reason to be proud of over the years, and has and it had a great deal of dividends for us, uh, and we're happy to have, certainly. So congrats go to David for uh, seeing a book that not necessarily at that time everyone else was willing to take a chance on, uh, because it was controversial and to some degree against the, the uh, trends of the time. Um, at that time, though, Nadine Strawson of uh, the ACLU said, this important book provides a welcome encouragement for all who express or defend unpopular, controversial ideas of any sort, reminding us that this is our moral obligation if we are to maintain a regime of free intellectual inquiry. The challenge remains for us today, and so we're delighted to have John back after 20 years for his second edition to talk about these issues of free speech and the kindly inquisitors. John? Thank you, John. Um, thank you, Brian and Greg. It's uh, a real privilege to have such distinguished commentators. I believe they'll be allocated a minute and a half each. <laughs> More than ample. Um, I especially want to second the opportunity to uh, thank David Bowes, who couldn't be here, vice president of Cato, who now is responsible for getting this book into print twice. And the first time was really quite difficult. Um, it's an expanded edition, and what I've tried to do, and what you'll find out when you buy the book, did I mention it's for sale? <laughs> um, there's some important points to be making that I'm going to try to make in the next few minutes, but, but the takeaway I'd like you to think about really is buy the book. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, ponder that <laughs> while I say other things. Uh, it's an e-book. It's great. There will be a paperback version of the new book out in the spring as well. Um, I wanted to talk just for a few minutes about what's changed in the last 20 years and how to think about what's changed. And in particular, I want to say a few words about minorities and free speech and a man. Um, I'll get to the man in a few minutes. But first, I'll, I'll give you a sort of five-minute potted summary of Kindly Inquisitors. Has anyone read the original book, Kindly Inquisitors? Oh, great. Okay. So that's a few people. You'll bear with me while I give a very brief summary. Um, Kindly Inquisitors is a book about the moral and political and social, not legal, case for what I call liberal science. Liberal science is society's mechanism for adjudicating disputes about truth. Now, we often think about two other major liberal systems, a liberal system being one that is open-ended and rule-based and depersonalized. It will harness large networks of people in order to engage in various forms of exchange to allocate resources. 
And you know what the two are that people talk about. One, of course, is capitalism, the market system. It's in the business of allocating resources, and it does that through the exchange of goods and services using a signaling mechanism called price. You also know about the other one. It's called democracy. It allocates coercive political power and does that through the exchange of votes and compromise. Um, both of these are open-ended. Both of them are unending processes, constantly evolving. Both of them are very good at marshalling immense numbers of people over vast numbers of spaces. You can have democracies over 300 million people, and you can have markets over um, 6 billion people. But there is a third, kindly inquisitors argued, and it is the most successful, important, and great of the three, and that's what I call liberal science, and that is our social system for distinguishing truth from falsehood and knowledge from opinion. It's very easy to have ideas. It's very, very hard to find the correct ideas. It's like finding needles in a haystack. Liberal science is our system to do that. Now, of course, it includes physics and chemistry and the things we call science. I distinguish that with this phrase, liberal science, by which I mean the entire intellectual system, all the way out to journalism, you know, history, anybody who is involved in the quest for truth and who is participating in that quest for truth in the public network of checking and debunking is engaging in liberal science. It is open-ended. It is rule-based, not individual-based. And it's based on exchange. In this case, the exchange of criticism. And at any given day, the rules are you have to subject your views to critical checking. If you don't, there are no consequences and you're a crazy person. And on any given day, those hypotheses which have best withstood the public process of critical checking constitute our knowledge. I argue that this system has been fantastically successful in two socially crucial ways. One is producing knowledge um, at a rapidly accelerating rate, a point I don't think I need to belabor at Cato. And the second, at least as important, is in creating social peace, putting an end to the creed wars which characterize Western culture before liberal science and still characterize non-liberal cultures today. However, like all liberal systems, this one is unsettling, uncertain. Many people believe it to be unfair because they think the results it reaches are unfair, and many people believe it to be inhumane because they think the results it reaches are cruel to certain people, and that's what Kindly Inquisitors was about. It was an attempt to examine those critiques and, and talk about them and rebut them. That's the original book. So now 20 years go past. We flash forward to 2013. And there's what I think is some good news. Um, the critique of liberal science, I believe, is now more careful and more narrow and more plausible than it used to be. It used to be something like if a member of a vulnerable minority group, gays, for example, is offended, you've done something wrong and you should be punished for it or you should be silenced. Today, it's something more like a hostile environment doctrine. You can read about it in a fine book by Jeremy Waldron called The Harm in Hate Speech. I disagree with it, but I can recommend it. And it says something like this. Look, if someone just offends Jonathan Rauch subjectively, tough for Jonathan Rauch. That's free speech. We're for that. But what about a case when you've got so much hate speech going on that you created a hostile environment for minorities, especially traditionally vulnerable minorities, gays, blacks, and so forth, that they cannot effectively function as equal citizens in society. Um, 
They feel like second-class citizens. They feel intimidated. They feel silenced. It's an objective standard. It's a social standard. Once you reach that standard of hostile environment, governments need to step in and regulate speech. And indeed, most governments have. America and Hungary are, to my knowledge, the only two exceptions. In other Western liberal democracies, hate speech codes are the law. Um, moreover, as you'll hear more, I think, from Greg Lukianoff, um, hate speech uh, hostile environment doctrine has been bureaucratized on the campus in America um, and uh, has become part of the furniture down there. So I decided to take a look at this and see in the new afterword to this book if I could say something intelligent about the very, very strongest case for hate speech. I decided to examine that. Waldron's thought experiment is take a society, imagine it is festooned with speech that is hostile to minorities. Imagine eight-year-olds and 10-year-olds who are gypsies having to walk to school every day under signs saying, gypsies, get out. Imagine a society saturated with hate speech. Surely then, he argues, at least in that case, should we not have a speech code? Well, I can bring some experience to bear on that. Um, this thought experiment is not completely hypothetical. Blacks, of course, lived through something like that for many years in America. And I am gay and was born in 1960. I grew up in the environment that Jeremy Waldron describes. Of course, as I hope all of you know, openly gay people could not serve in the government in any capacity. We could not get security clearances. We could not serve in the military. We were harassed and arrested by the police, which made a sport of giving us arrest records. So we then got fired from our jobs because private employers would not employ us. And of course, we were beaten and sometimes killed on the streets also for sport. And all of that went on in a background of universal assumptions that homosexuality was socially dangerous, sinful, and sick. Now, how it can be sinful and sick, no one in those days ever bothered to explain. But this was so universally believed to be true that no one said otherwise. It was on the nightly news. It was what came from the pulpit, the idea that gay people were simply the moral equal of everybody else and that our relationships was and our love was just as good, seemed preposterous. This was literally the society saturated in hate and hate-filled assumptions. Well, another case I don't have to belabor at Cato, this has changed. You all know it's changed. Many of you have been part of this change. And those of you under 30 hear of all this as a distant memory, an echo of a primordial era, which I'm very happy about. So then I ask myself, well, what changed it? Well, here's what we know did not change the situation. Hate speech laws. You obviously were not going to get a law protecting gay people from hate speech in 1968. It would have seemed absurd if anyone had even thought of it. And in fact, if you'd had hate speech laws in 1968, they would have protected children and families from homosexual speech. They would have been used against gay people. Um, hate speech laws are the cart, not the horse. They come along after a society reaches a critical mass of opinion that supports minority rights. What then was the horse? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to give you that horse for the next five minutes or so in the story of a man. Now, 
I knew this man just a little bit, and the story means a lot to me. So I sometimes get a bit emotional telling the story, but that's fine. I'm fine. Some of you will get emotional too. Um, raise your hand if you've heard the name Frank Kameny. We must be in Cato because some hands go up. <laughs> Out in society, the man is virtually unknown. Um, well, let me just tell you the story of Frank Kameny, and I think you'll see why it's germane. Frank Kameny was born in 1925. He served in World War II in Italy. He saw some very nasty combat action and served ably. He went on to get a PhD as an astronomer and to become an astronomer for the U.S. Army Map Service. He was gay. In 1957, in a police sting, I think in Lafayette Park, as I recall, he was arrested. That generated a record which went up to the U.S. Civil Service Commission, which fired him from his job. Homosexuality was incompatible with um, the U.S. Civil Service because Frank Kameny was a pervert. Now, this happened a lot in those days. In 1953, a U.S. senator shot himself in his office because J. Edgar Hoover was threatening to out his son as gay. What was unusual about Frank Kameny is he didn't melt into the background. He believed what happened was wrong. Frank believed in two things. First, he believed that the Declaration of Independence was a promise that the founders had made personally to him. Second, he was a scientist. He believed in the power of truth and that if he told the truth long enough and hard enough and made the best arguments, he would prevail by himself against all of society. So he set out to tell the truth. He challenged his firing before the U.S. Civil Service Commission, could not even get them to talk to him. He then went to the uh, Congress and demanded the policy be changed. He got letters back saying things like, in all my years of congressional service, yours is the most revolting. He filed a brief before the U.S. Supreme Court trying to get his case heard. The brief says, I paraphrase, but it's a remarkable brief. I think 1961, he says, I served my country in Europe to fight tyranny only to discover that I must come back and fight tyranny here at home. The Supreme Court did not hear his case. He founds the Mattachine Society of Washington, the first uh, one of the first gay civil rights groups, and in 1965 leads the very first openly gay protest, a picket in front of the White House and also in front of Independence Hall with people, guys and women in suits, carrying signs that say, at least our government should talk to us, and equal rights for homosexuals. No one had done that before. Meanwhile, he helps people who are getting fired from their jobs, tries to represent them before the government. For example, a man fired by the Library of Congress that correspondence survives. In 1971, he becomes the first openly gay person to run for Congress. Of course, he loses, but he makes his point. In 1972, he's able to take a microphone, actually not a microphone, a rostrum. The microphones had been shut off um, in an attempt to prevent this at the American Psychiatric Association and tells the assembled psychiatric great and good in America that they are conducting a campaign of extermination against American homosexuals. The wall begins to crack in 1973. The psychiatric designation that we're all sick comes down. Kameny calls that the greatest mass cure in human history. <laughs> 1975, the ban on uh, public sector gay employment falls and on and on. You know how the story ends, sort of. What you may not know is that Kameny kind of fades into the woodwork because he's not very interested in gay marriage when all of that comes along. 
And he's not all that interested in anti-discrimination laws. Um, and he becomes an old man. But then, the part of the story I especially love is, here's what Frank Kameny lives to see before he dies in 2011. In 2007, his papers, including the documents in which he defended a fired openly gay Library of Congress employee, sorry, gay, not openly gay, Library of Congress employee, are accepted into the civil rights collection of the U.S. Library of Congress. That same year, his picket signs are accepted into the permanent collection of the Smithsonian, where they are displayed for a period next to Thomas Jefferson's writing desk. In 2009, I believe it is, he is handed the pen by President Obama, who has just signed some partnership benefits for civil servants. In 2011, he is in the front row when Don't Ask, Don't Tell is repealed. My favorite, though, is that in there somewhere, I think 2009, he is summoned to the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, the agency which had fired him, now under a new name, and given a special prize, the Theodore Roosevelt Award, and a formal public apology by the U.S. government. The person giving that apology, the director of the Office of Personnel Management is, can you guess, openly gay. Frank, being Frank, accepts this award by jumping half out of his seat and saying, I accept your apology. <laughs> so why am I telling you this long story about this extraordinary man? Well, notice what this man had when he started. Nothing. He had no votes. He had no money. He had no troops. He had zero. He had one thing, which was the power of ideas and the willingness to make a case and if there is one thing which liberal science excels at, far above any other system, it is identifying those rare voices with great ideas, subjecting their ideas to criticism, and pulling them into the center of the debate if they're successful. Very few people have the moral courage to be Frank Kameny. He suffered terribly for what he did. He never worked again after he was fired in 1957. But the good news is we don't all have to be Kamenis or Galileos or Newtons or Einsteins or Kings. Liberal science is very good at subjecting ideas to tests. What Kameny did was open a process of public criticism and sure enough, the dogmas, the assumptions, the biases of the anti-gay American society when exposed to public view and exposed to the force of criticism they simply crumbled. It took a bit of time, but they were incoherent. They were illogical. They were empirically wrong. Um, they were indefensible. And that became clear. Um, here's something that I think Kameny understood and that I think minorities need to remember. Hateful, when, when a society is saturated with hate, it's not because most individuals are full of hate and ill will. It's not because people are going around saying, hate on you, hate on you, hate on you. There are those kinds of haters, but they're pretty much people with tattoos on their knuckles who live in the fringes of trailer parks. The real problem that drives hate is false belief. If you believe that homosexuals are a threat to your family and your children, you are going to hate them. And the way you get at that is by substituting truth, by substituting better ideas for worse ideas. And indeed, once all the old unexamined assumptions of the homophobic past were examined, they crumbled. And once they crumbled, 
the entire superstructure of discrimination built on them also crumbled. So here's what turns out to be the case. And I think I've lived through it and have lived to see it. Public criticism, the open society, what I call liberal science, is in fact minorities' greatest weapon. Yes, it is a burden on minorities. We do face discrimination. We do face hostility. But the open society, robust free criticism is the solution to that problem, not the problem. They are the one weapon that we have as a small minority to turn society against ignorance and dogma, the source of hate. Um, the lesson that I take from all of this, and the lesson that I would tell those in the business of regulating what they think are hateful speech and assumptions is that that exercise is counterproductive. It condescends to minorities by assuming that we're going to be silenced. Well, you know, Frank Kameny didn't get the memo about being silenced and intimidated by hate speech. It pushed him to fight back and has pushed many other minorities to fight back down through history. Just as important, the haters give us an adversary. Jerry Falwell, Pat Robinson, Pat Robertson, Anita Bryant, today Orson Scott Card. These people give us an opportunity to put our case forward, to be heard, and to look good by comparison. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you change minds. In that sense, hate speech, or more accurately, a society that allows hate speech is our friend. It is our burden, yes, as minorities, but it is the weapon that we wield protecting ourselves and others. I would argue that we minorities are better off, in fact, much better off in a system that protects hate speech than we are in a system that protects us from hate speech. And I think we can say that now empirically based on what we've accomplished in this country in the last 20 or so years. You know, I think about Frank Kameny, and I recall that he never tried to silence anyone else. I can't recall him ever advocating a measure whose aim was to get, move someone else out of the public dialogue. He was very confrontational. One day, I was in a room where he confronted uh, Robert Knight of the Family Research Council and told him in as many words, if you believe your God disapproves of me and my love, then your God is a false and bigoted God. That's how he sounded. He didn't need a <laughs> microphone. But he always worked through criticism, and he always worked on the belief that correction, not coercion, not silencing, is the right answer. And I think he's right. And that's what this new edition of Kindly Inquisitors tries to communicate. Thank you. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Uh, our first commentator will be Greg Lukianoff, who is the president of the Foundation of Individual Rights in Education, otherwise known as FIRE. You may have seen that. And he's the author, <clears throat> excuse me, of Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship, and the End of the American Debate, and has published articles in the Washington Post, New York Times, and many other major uh, publications. He's co-author of FIRE's Guide to Free Speech on Campus and authored a chapter in the anthology New Threats to Freedom. He's a frequent guest on local and national syndicated radio programs and has represented FIRE on national television shows, including the CBS Evening News. He's also testified before the U.S. Senate about free speech issues on America's campuses. In 2008, 
He became the first ever recipient of the Playboy Foundation Freedom of Expression Award. And in 2010, he received, received Ford Hall Forum's Lewis P. and Evelyn Smith First Amendment Award on behalf of FIRE. Greg is a graduate of American University and of Stanford Law School, where he focused on First Amendment and constitutional law. Please welcome Greg. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, this is a great, great day for, for me and for my organization, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, because Kindly Inquisitors and Jonathan Rausch has uh, served as an inspiration for what we do, for what we believe, and why we believe it. Um, I spent a lot of time talking about the beauty and pragmatism of freedom of speech. Um, the beauty in, in the, the, the idea of freedom of speech to at least previous generations and thinkers has a kind of moral force. Um, it's a compelling idea. The idea that if you simply hear the other side out, you might gain wisdom. You might gain wisdom even from things that initially sound to you to be foolish. And the foolish person occasionally is also right. There's, there's a beauty. There's a symmetry in that. But I also point out, and something I actually emphasize a lot more in my speeches in the beauty and the poetry of freedom of speech, is its pragmatic value. Freedom of speech works. Hearing people out works. Um, if someone is dissenting, hearing what they have to say before you chop their heads off, or preferably not chopping their head off at all, turns out to be actually a really good idea. And it's one of the reasons why I love Kindly Inquisitors. It makes a tr uh, dramatic, sensible, kind-hearted argument, in my opinion, for, the, uh, for how free speech works for our society. Now, there's something that Jonathan talks about. I mean, um, it, 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 the concept appears in the book, but this particular phraseology doesn't. The idea of the, uh, uh, what we have now, what, we, uh, what he was afraid was coming, was an offendedness sweepstakes. That essentially, if you make the argument that I'm offended, the ultimate trump card on what people are allowed to say, it, you shouldn't be surprised that the standard for being offended gets lower and lower and lower. It's only human nature that if you have a trick, if you have a card that lets you win any argument, you're going to play it every so often. And that's to the detriment, in my opinion, of discourse. So I'm less optimistic about Jonathan about the current state of discourse, primarily because I work on college campuses. I see a lot of, a lot of the worst of it. Um, but I want to give you a sort of a jarring contrast uh, about where, how attitudes have changed. And this will be the most... Um, offensive slide I'm going to be showing today. This is a cartoon published by uh, Barbara Papish in a uh, newspaper, in a college newspaper back in the 1970s. Uh, she was angry that police that she believed had uh, roughed up her group uh, had gotten away scot-free. So she made a cartoon, or someone made a cartoon for the magazine she published, that show the cops raping the Statue of Liberty. Now, what's interesting about attitudes about freedom of speech today is when I show this on campuses, you get a lot of gasps from, from students. In 1973, the Supreme Court had no problem understanding that, well, right, you don't need to protect pleasant, popular speech. You need to protect stuff that does shock. And the whole idea of this was to, was to shock and offend, and therefore it should be protected. The Supreme Court had no trouble saying that the mere dissemination of ideas, including this cartoon, no matter how offensive to good taste on a state university campus, may not be shut off in the name of conventions of decency alone. Compelling language, 
Um, but I have to tell you, if, I, if this cartoon popped up on a campus these days, you bet um, students would, potentially, would, would be uh, asking fire for help. So what's happened is that we've replaced this idea, this bold idea that people can be exposed and even should be exposed to ideas that they find offensive or difficult. Um, has been largely replaced on college campuses with this, what I believe to be somewhat naive belief in the enlightened censor. Um, and that it's been, been trying to claim the moral high ground away from liberal science. And so I'm gonna, I wanna refer to this sort of classic fire case that um, I, I, I talk about a lot in my talks, but just bears repeating. So that, this is what, what the Supreme Court agrees is protected. This is still controlling law in the US. This is what I have to deal with on a daily basis. I don't know if you know this book, but it's a book, uh, Notre Dame versus the Klan. It's about the defeat of the Klan when they marched on Notre Dame in 1924. Uh, Notre, uh, Klan also doesn't like Catholics. They march on Notre Dame. Um, and it celebrates the fact that Notre Dame students got together and fought off the Klan. It is an enthusiastically anti-Klan book that talks about the uh, KKK getting their asses handed to them. And because a student was reading this book uh, at Indiana U University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, he was found guilty of racial harassment without so much as a hearing. It was simply the fact that someone found this offensive. There was no argument that he could make that uh, someone was offended and that was enough, even, if the, even though they misunderstood it. Uh, it took the combined effort of FIRE, the ACLU, and, and the Wall Street Journal to get this university to back down. So just to give you some context about where, where we were and where we are right now. Um, and then I, th and I think a lot of this comes from, a lot of this ch change in attitude started in the 80s with the rise of the speech code movement on college campuses, which Jonathan talks a, a, a lot about in Kindly Inquisitors, uh, that essentially this sort of right not to be offended idea became popular on campuses. Um, and again, like all, like all movements in the history of censorship, it started with the best of intentions to protect minorities and women from, from offense. But the problem is these things have a tendency, well, first of all, I don't believe in enlightened censorship to begin with, but these things have a tendency to take on sort of a peculiar life of their own and they result in language uh, on college campuses and speech goes. So we found that 62.1% in our most recent survey of 409 colleges that we surveyed have what we call red light speech codes. That, that is codes that completely violate uh, First Amendment standards. I refer to them as laughably unconstitutional. We've challenged you know, uh, you know, dozens of these over the years. Every single time they've been challenged in a court of law, they've been defeated. Yet nonetheless, these codes remain. Um, and to give you an idea of, of what, what, one, one good example of what I'm talking about here was that Drexel University, was it University of Connecticut, had a policy that banned inconsiderate jokes and inappropriately directed laughter. <laughs> this was defeated in a court of law in 1991. This was laughed at in the court of public opinion at the same time. And despite that fact, Drexel University in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, revived this policy wholesale. Uh, in, in the 2000s, we had to fight this policy again. So there's, a, there's this weird kind of mindlessness to it. And it's having serious uh, repercussions. This is a, and this policy, I, I think, I just like <coughs> this policy just comes right out and says it. Texas A&M currently has a policy on the book, despite fire criticizing it for years, that guarantees the rights for respect for personal feelings and freedom from indignity of any type. 
It's very British sounding. It sounds like something my mother would say. And I talked, I, I spoke at AM about two weeks ago, and they, every student thinks this is a ridiculous policy, but it comes with the, with the power to punish. Um, and so it's not so cute when you realize that every student talking to me at that moment could be found guilty of not respecting at some point the feelings, the personal feelings of others. But where it gets really scary, and this is where the audience should be very concerned, is when this finds its way into federal law. And this just happened on May 9th. Um, the, uh, the, the Department of Justice and the Department of Education got together and in a letter to the University of Montana, took away all of the normal protections, all of the normal free speech protective language um, that surrounds harassment, and simply redefined harassment as any unwelcome verbal conduct, also known as speech, of a sexual nature. Wildly broad. This would be laughed out of court. And by the way, they explicitly also got rid of the reasonable person standard. They explicitly said that you no longer had to say that a reasonable person would have been offended by this speech. And do keep in mind that these kind of sexual uh, harassment codes, they will expand and they do always expand to race, gender, religion, ethnicity. Again, a code that would, that would not stand a second in court has been effectively been made, made the law of the land. We've had some success in pushing back against this so far, but it's something that should be of concern to everybody that, that it's reached that level. And now for the walking dead part of the show. Now, what's interesting about it is, and Jonathan and I talked about this last night, I do think that, that there has been some lack of, uh, that the, the sort of fervor with which people advocate um, the, the ideology of censorship has, has died down somewhat. You don't have great intellectual defenses of censorship with the exception of Jeremy Waldron's, and Jeremy Waldron's is uh, a narrow uh, conception, just like Jonathan said. But what, what is happening when you undermine the moral force the, the, of free speech, then other forces are allowed to replace it, and that includes mindless bureaucratic application of rules. And I've seen a lot of this. I even added a chapter in my book uh, at, at the last minute about this. So this is the free speech zone at University of Cincinnati. A libertarian student group was trying to hand out a right to work petition, trying to petition the government for redress of grievances. And they were told that they not only had to get into an area that was literally 0.1% of the campus, that free speech zone is represented by the pen, but that they had to get 10 days advanced state permission in order to do so. That's not an awful lot of free speech. I don't think they needed, they should have needed to go to court for this. Um, they went to court, they fought this out in court, and of course it was laughed out of court. This is not a reasonable time, place, and manner restriction. Nobody would think so. But what's scarier to me then than the fact that they had this code in the first place was that they thought it was a good and noble thing to fight this out in court. Now, even worse, and this is something that you're just gonna, you should really look up on, on, online, we just filed a suit uh, with Bob Corn Revere, who's in the audience, uh, last week in a case in which a student, uh, he, he basically, he, he looked at his campus and said, my campus is so restrictive, I bet I could get in trouble for handing out copies of the Constitution on Constitution Day. So he proceeds to go out and just hand out free copies of the Constitution, and it is, as, as uh, the blogger Popat put it, the university obligingly be clowned itself. <laughs> <laughs> and comes out, 
Uh, and first he's approached by a, an officer who explains, it's like, listen, you can't, and he's sort of like, you do understand I'm handing out copies of the Constitution on Constitution Day. He's then sent to an administrator who just amazingly, pitch perfect, explains, you're supposed to go to the free speech zone in that little concrete area over there, making this hand action, which I just thought was terrific. But then she goes to a binder, and that's what she's doing right there. She's looking at a binder about when he can apply to use the free speech zone in order to hand out constitutions. She says, okay, a couple days from now might be possible, um, or maybe in October. This is September 17th, by the way. So again, so th this has taken on sort of a life of its own, this kind of zombie-like um, uh, quality of it. Now, when I was first talking about the book on learning liberty, uh, campus censorship and the end of American debate, um, I probably the most distressing thing was things have gotten so bad with regards to people's attitudes about free speech. When I could come up with hundreds and hundreds of examples of censorship on college campuses, I was still getting the response, why does this matter? I think by itself, this should matter. But I do think it's bleeding out in the larger society. And I was looking for data that shows how, how widespread this concern is. And I found this. 2010 survey asked 25,000 students this milquetoast question, do you believe it is safe to hold unpopular positions on your campus? This is the kind of question that you ask when you want 100% of people saying, sure, it's safe to hold it. It's not safe to discuss it, but sure, just holding it? Of course I can hold them. And nonetheless, despite this being a question designed to get 100% of people saying, sure, only 40% of college freshmen strongly agree with the statement that it is safe to merely hold unpopular points of view on campus. And then look what, look what happens. Every year they're there, that attitude goes down till it's only 30% of college seniors saying that it's safe to hold unpopular points of view on campus. And guess what group was the most cynical about the uh, freedom of speech on college campuses? Faculty. Only 16.7% of faculty members strongly agreed with the statement that it's safe to merely hold unpopular points of view on campus. So why don't you hear about that, that this much? Well, there's a couple reasons. One is if you follow three simple rules, you'll be fine. Talk to the people you already agree with, join the ideological groups that, that, uh, that reflect what you believed in high school, and don't disagree with professors whose egos can't take it. You follow those three rules and you're gonna be, you're gonna be fine. But the problem is that is supercharging everything that's wrong with our society. We are already talking to the people we already agree with. We're already watching the news channels that reflect what we believe. And if universities are applying uh, really overt pressure to keep people from having discussions that might offend, we can only expect more of this. But here's what's worse about it, is that I don't know if students believe this is even a bad thing. Um, this was especially chilling uh, fact that came out. Students. Uh, citizens have been asked by the First Amendment Center for uh, years now, ask this question, does the First Amendment go too far? Uh, and this year, it was one of the worst results they'd had in their history, and particularly stark among 18 to 30-year-olds. 47% of 18 to 30-year-olds came back saying, no, no, the free speech goes too far. Uh, First Amendment goes too far. Uh, implicitly saying, or quite explicitly saying, we have too many, much free speech rights. Um, 47%, and I see this when I go to college campuses. I've seen this every year of, over the past five years that say five, 10 years ago when I used to go, you'd hear gasps when I talk about these cases of censorship. And now you end up getting more nods and people going, well, the administrator's heart must have been in the right place. Just absolutely chilling to me. So I want to 
just uh, conclude by saying, to, quoting Fire co-founder um, Alan Charles Coors, because he, he encapsulated what's at stake here when you, under, uh, when you undermine the practice uh, of free speech on what should be the freest institutions in our country. Um, a nation that does not educate in liberty will not long endure in liberty and will not even know when it is lost. Thank you. Um, our third speaker and second commentator today will be Brian Moulton. Brian leads the Human Rights Campaign's team of lawyers and fellows focused on federal policy, and he specifically focuses on issues including employment, health, marriage, and relationship recognition, and federal tax and benefits. He also coordinates uh, the Human Rights Campaign's advocacy efforts as friends of the court, that is, friends of the court briefs and so on in litigation affecting the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community. Moulton is co-author of the HRC Foundation publication, Transgender Americans, A Handbook for Understanding. Prior to joining the Human Rights Campaign in uh, 2004, Brian served as a legal intern to the state legislative lawyering and transgender civil rights projects at the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force a judicial intern to the Honorable Deborah Batts on the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, and as an HRC McCleary Law Fellow. He received his bachelor's degree in classics from the University of Texas at Austin, and his law degree here in Washington from the George Washington Law School. Brian, welcome to Cato. Thank you, um, and, and thank you for having me, and thank you uh, particularly to John. Um, if you have not read his book uh, on gay marriage, it's a tremendous uh, uh, statement about the conservative case uh, for marriage equality, and John has been a tremendous advocate uh, uh, in bringing that uh, part of the argument to the public sphere. So um, grateful that he has done that and for inviting me to participate today, uh, and also for doing a very uh, impressive impression of Frank Kameny, who <laughs> basically did sound just like that. Um, <laughs> and, 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 but also I want to express my gratitude to John for including Frank as part of the, the afterward and, and really raising the profile of his contribution uh, to, the, to the movement. He was unfortunately too often a, a forgotten hero uh, of our work. Uh, I had the great pleasure to uh, meet him a couple of times. He does not hesitate to also yell at people who advocate for the same general issues that he believes in. Um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, he was really a, a tremendous part of our movement, and it was uh, it was very touching in the end to see uh, the government at least uh, try to do right by by Frank uh, uh, for everything that he had been through. So uh, I wanted to really take the opportunity, um, looking at the the challenge that John laid out uh, in his afterward about uh, the the gay rights movement, um, taking to heart uh, the the central message of his book. Uh, to try and contend that perhaps we have, uh, and that a lot uh, of the advocacy that LGBT uh, equality uh, individuals and organizations do um, is very much cognizant uh, of the importance of uh, free speech uh, in advancing that cause uh, throughout our history as a movement and, and in the work that we do today. Um, and so I want to, you know, sort of suggest that, um, first of all, uh, LGBT advocates think restrictions on speech are, are generally a bad idea um, because we have experienced them. Um, and I think John alluded to a, a bit of this in his discussion earlier, but there have been legal restrictions that did very much make it 
hard, if not impossible, for LGBT people to speak uh, about being LGBT people in a, in a whole range uh, of different environments. Um, you all probably saw the tremendous victories we had in the Supreme Court this summer, but our first victory in the Supreme Court uh, was a case in 1958 brought by a, a gay magazine called One Inc. Uh, the company was One Inc. Um, it was simply challenging uh, federal uh, law governing the U.S. mail that pro prohibited that magazine from even being distributed uh, because it was considered obscene uh, under the uh, the initial application of that law. They were ultimately successful before the Supreme Court, but it was a restriction on even being able to disseminate information about who LGBT people were. Um, similarly, you know, we still contend uh, with laws that restrict the discussion of, of homosexuality in any way, or certainly in any positive way, uh, in schools uh, in many states uh, all over the country. Um, including, you know, efforts to enact even more draconian restrictions in, you know, places like Tennessee, where even sort of uh, discussions of homosexuality in any way, shape, or form would be prohibited in a, in a public school. Um, and we also have contended for a, a long time with uh, approaches to, to sex education uh, uh, that require discussions only of uh, sexual activity within the confines of a, of a marriage uh, between a man and a woman, uh, essentially silencing any conversation about the realities of the, the personal lives of LGBT youth in, in most public schools. Uh, and of course, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which, uh, you know, the repeal of which, uh, ultimate, the ultimate repeal of which John uh, talked about, um, was itself a restriction on the, on the speech uh, of gay and lesbian service members, uh, acknowledging who they were uh, as individuals like Frank Kameny, uh, who served their country uh, uh, admirably uh, and just happened to also be uh, gays and lesbians. Uh, and of course, have, we have, as a movement, have contended with a lot of cultural restrictions on speech, uh, aside from those legal ones. Um, the very uh, liberal bastion of the New York Times, for example, refused uh, to use the term gay uh, until uh, 1987. Um, one would have hoped they'd be a little bit ahead of the curve, but, uh, but even there, uh, sort of a, a, a positive or even a, a somewhat neutral discussion of LGBT people uh, in the mainstream media was, was a challenge to, to try and overcome. Uh, so I think part of the reason that uh, uh, LGBT advocates are, are cognizant of, of speech restrictions as, a, as an issue is because we have experienced them uh, from, from the other side uh, with, with quite a bit uh, of our history. Um, and we also understand the role that speech has played in, uh, in advancing equality and, and very much, uh, as John said, in, in uh, allowing that conversation about who we are as individuals uh, to happen and to convince uh, those on the other side. Um, and really, this is a point that's been proven time and again through uh, public opinion polling uh, about who it is that supports uh, LGBT equality. And, and more often than not, those are people who know someone uh, in their family or friends or, or colleagues who, who is gay. And, and obviously, it's that speech, that ability to talk about who we are uh, as LGBT people uh, and try to influence our, our friends and neighbors uh, in, uh, in both uh, political and, and cultural change um, that has really been a cornerstone uh, of the amazing uh, amount of progress that we have seen uh, in, in the last um, many years, particularly even just the last five years. Uh, but, you know, and that's why, you know, you still see people continue to, 
to come out uh, and talk about uh, who they are. Um, people who are still, you know, in many cases, unfortunately, in, in much the same uh, precarious situation um, that Frank Kameny was, perhaps the, not culturally, but certainly um, many people in places where uh, there, are, um, there are not uh, remedies for those individuals who, like Frank, might lose their job if they spoke about who they were, um, where they might still face ostracization from their community or their family. Uh, and so it is still very much an, uh, a challenging act of bravery uh, to, to be honest and to, to speak about these issues in many parts of this country. Um, and finally, I think we, you know, we appreciate the importance of, uh, of uh, unfettered speech uh, on these issues because, frankly, our opponents speaking a lot about what they think is, is more often not becoming helpful uh, to us as a, as a movement. And, and I think an easy example um, of that uh, is, is an issue that came before the Supreme Court just, uh, just a couple of terms ago. Um, you all are probably familiar with uh, Fred Phelps, uh, a delightful man from Topeka, Kansas, uh, who has a, has a church, which is largely his uh, immediate family, uh, called Westboro Baptist Church. And um, the, the good folks at Westboro um, are, are not fans of LGBT Americans, uh, and they like to travel the country and, and express that opinion. Um, it has come to be that really the country in and of itself has uh, embodied all of this, um, you know, pro-LGBT rhetoric, and thus is really uh, at, uh, is condemned and at a loss and rejected by God. And so they ha they protest on you know essentially every possible opportunity, and increasingly uh, at funerals uh, of both public figures and and often now uh, sadly at uh, at the funerals of service members, um, you know, killed in the most recent conflicts. Uh, and it was around one of those funerals that this this lawsuit uh, came about. They were picketing a a funeral of a service member uh, in Maryland, and his family uh, filed suit in federal court, um, you know, challenging uh, their uh, their their protests there, uh, arguing among other things that there had been intentional infliction of emotional distress uh, on the family, uh, and uh, argued their case. They received a, a substantial uh, award at uh, at the trial court level, and and that case made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court, um, and the court. Um, uh, acknowledging that the the really horrible message of the the Phelps family nonetheless uh, protected um, their speech uh, in this instance, uh, and there was a great deal of pressure within the LGBT community um, for organizations and individuals to speak out in favor uh, of this family uh, against um, the actions of of uh, Phelps and and his uh, church, um, and there was. A resistance to that really across the board uh, among LGBT organizations, recognizing the importance of speech protections uh, and also the importance of maintaining Fred Phelps uh, uh, as an ally in the messaging uh, on LGBT equality. Um, but you know that was a relatively easy call, I think, for for advocates who understand the importance of speech um, for ourselves and and for uh, the ongoing uh, advancement of the dialogue on LGBT issues. But um, as John alluded to in, in his, his afterward, you know, as always, the devil is a bit in the details. Uh, and the more challenging examples that we contend with um, are, are a real range. And I wanted to talk about some of these issues that we contend with, by and large, just to emphasize that we contend with them uh, as issues. We acknowledge that there are speech aspects to these issues and, and really struggle with what are the right um, lines to draw in, in many of these situations. So. Um, 
you know, for example, you know, uh, LGBT bullying and harassment in, in elementary and, and secondary schools has become a very, uh, a much more visible issue in, in recent years. And um, trying to find the way to protect uh, LGBT students um, from uh, ongoing uh, bullying and harassment in educational environments um, that has, uh, you know, often uh, contributed to, um, you know, their uh, failure in, in school and, and significant uh, mental and psychological issues. Um, but, you know, where are those lines drawn and what are they? Are they daily, um, you know, instances of, of harassment and bullying? Are they simply daily expressions of religious uh, speech around uh, homosexuality? Uh, how do we how do we find the right line in, in those sorts of situations? Um, we see increasingly in, in the context of non-discrimination in, in states that have moved uh, to marriage for same-sex couples, challenges um, by business owners and, and individuals who uh, don't want to provide certain goods or services, um, particularly to same-sex couples who are marrying, um, uh, notwithstanding a statewide law that prohibits discrimination uh, in public accommodations based on sexual orientation. Um, if the speech, and in this case, really speech and, a, and an argument of religious exercise, uh, is the, the justification, you know, again, how does the law draw that line uh, when is it only when a business is is serving uh, members of the public generally? Uh, what about organizations, religious entities that receive taxpayer dollars to provide some sort of social service in the place of the government? Um, you know, when are the the, the expressions of, of speech and, and religious belief in uh, in these instances uh, sufficiently protected uh, versus the the need to ensure that LGBT people have. Uh, ready access to those, the same range of goods and services as other people. Um, um, when, you know, another issue that comes up a great deal uh, is the issue of conversion therapy or reparative therapy, the, the somewhat now pseudoscientific concept that uh, someone's sexual orientation can be changed. Um, is how do we deal with issues of restricting uh, the ability to provide that practice uh, through licensed uh, mental health professionals in states, particularly to young people, uh, at which point uh, is that still the speech of the individual or the actions of a regulated profession? Uh, so a number of issues that are, are, are currently you know, very much uh, at the, the forefront that involve many of these sorts of issues around uh, speech restrictions, potentially, that, that we struggle with in, in, in finding uh, how to draw the line in the right place. Uh, but, you know, I, I want to just conclude um, by, you know, again, sort of coming back to the idea that I think by and large, um, the, the movement really does acknowledge the importance of, um, of unfettered um, speech around uh, these issues, including from our opponents, uh, and that really our reactions to those speech, our call for individuals who perhaps uh, continue to put forward those uh, what we think are completely untenable arguments about LGBT people, including in positions of authority and government. And uh, by raising the profile of that, we're continuing to increase the dialogue around those issues, including the, the, the negative things that our opponents say. And, and that really is, you know, I would agree with Jonathan, in the best interest of continuing to uh, advance uh, equality uh, and, and all of our public policy goals. So um, I thank you again, uh, and I will leave it uh, for questions. On that note, thanks very much, um, Brian, and to all of our speakers. We'll move now to the question and answer session. Uh, basically, I ask that uh, if you have a question for any of our speakers, please raise your hand, 
uh, and then wait for the microphone so that you can then identify yourself and your uh, affiliation, if you wish, and then uh, offer a question in the form of a question to one of our speakers. You can, you can direct them to a particular person or to everyone. Uh, right here on the right side was the first eager questioner. Thanks. Uh, Nigel Ashford, Institute of Humane Studies. Uh, to all three speakers, should any speech be illegal? And I'm, th I'm thinking particularly in terms of threats of violence, but I'm just saying, is there any limits whatsoever? And I've got a quickie to, to Brian. Is the HRC for or against hate speech laws and codes? Um, yes, I, I think some speech should be restricted. Um, threats, personal directed harassment. Uh, there, there the standard, as Alan Kors used to say, is the personal and directed and persistent nature of it, not the message. So if I run around after you saying queer, queer, queer every day, that should not be legal any more than if I run around after you saying genius, genius, genius every day. Um, so yes, yeah, some forms of speech should be restricted, but they should be as neutral as humanly possible as regards the content. Uh, well, you know, I agree with John. There are absolutely, you know, examples where, um, you know, there are reasonable restrictions on, you know, speech like, like many other constitutional rights. And, you know, the, the Phelps case I mentioned, if the, if the Klan, sorry, Klan, and, not that clan. That they do call themselves the Phelps clan. I wasn't trying oh. to be pejorative. Um, you know, if they had not been, you know, on the public sidewalk protesting the funeral, they had tried to be, you know, in the cemetery amongst the family protesting the funeral. You know, those those are very different situations, and there are reasonable restrictions on the the place and the manner of their their speech. There uh, certainly, um, to your specific question on HRC, no, there's we don't advocate for you know uh, any legal you know a hate speech law in the you know, sort of the, uh, I guess, in, as, you know, exists in many of our, you know, uh, in other Western democracies, like, you know, our neighbors to the north, for example, where, you know, religious leaders who speak out, uh, you know, particularly on, on uh, homosexuality have been uh, fined and, uh, you know, otherwise, you know, censored by the state. That's, you know, that is obviously not the, the legal regime we operate in with within. And I think hopefully, as my comments suggested, we don't think that that's, you know, a uh, the right environment, you know, for us to be successful, um, given how much we depend on, you know, the ability to have, you know, free and unfettered discussion of, of our side of the issues. Yeah, and F FIRE is often called sort of a, a free speech absolutist organization. And while I take that as a compliment, what ultimately we agree with, with a lot of the limitations that the Supreme Court has recognized to speech. Certainly, no, I don't think anybody argues that terroristic threats should be protected. Um, you know, I definitely don't agree with all of obscenity law, um, but that's considered to be a restriction. I, I think that 18-year-olds should be allowed to watch sexual content that they want. But, um, but when it comes to uh, things like libel, you know, nobody... Like, the, there's very few people who argue that libel should be protected. Um, it should be restricted. Um, the and time, even time, place, and manner restrictions, where you're saying, you know, having a uh, can you have noise restrictions on th on rock bands at three o'clock in the morning? You know, like that that kind of stuff. We 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 don't object to. I actually think, in some ways, sort of what we're saying is actually a humbler point, which is which is essentially that. As, as Jonathan put it, that viewpoints need to be protected, that uh, the expression of ideas and opinions always need to be protected. And as soon as you allow any amount of evaluating on whether or not you think something is pro-social or the opinion itself,
itself is good, that's the, the that's a very quick way to empower the government to simply silence opinions it doesn't like. So let me follow up with that just briefly. Uh, so there's this, in general, there's this discussion in First Amendment, as you well know, of a, an idea of low-value speech, that sort of a category that encompasses all the things, including obscenity, child pornography, things we've just mentioned. Um, is your concern here that, let's say, for example, just stipulate for a moment that the government could, I mean, after all, the could distinguish in the following way. People who are engaging in speech that sort of affects equality in one way or the other, you can see that, uh, and is simply abusive, right, on the one hand. And then speech that is uh, contrary or skeptical about certain policies or egalitarianism in general, but was a respectable sort of argument that, after all, has been made in many ways throughout history. Is the problem about low-value speech the worry that the low-value speech we could identify, simply abusive speech, is the limits on that will migrate inevitably to what is actually speech that maybe people don't like, but is certainly a contributor to the ongoing public debate or can be seen that way? Or is it that the abusive speech itself should be protected? You're not worried about the slippery slope. Um, to me, it's, it's a hard distinction to maintain because in principle, it's hard for me to understand a consistent and reliable way to identify low value speech. Right. As H.L. Mencken point out, there isn't a great flash of human knowledge that did not originate as someone's idea of a, um, um, of an obscenity. Um, so I'm not sure that I could find a principled place to distinguish between low value in principle and low value in practice. Now, I think I know the difference when I see it, and I think we all think we know the difference when we see it, and that's a good thing. And I think society, in the form of mores and morals, is pretty good at marginalizing people who don't have a good sense of where that distinction is and who engage in a lot of low value speech, and I'm all for that. But I worry about political authorities making those kinds of determinations. I, I, I fundamentally think that, that, that um, we're, we're engaged in a lot of as a society and, and, and people who write on, on, on some of these issues are, are, are sort of asking the wrong question and approaching it the wrong way. Um, I think that some of the discussion of the philosophy of freedom of speech has been somewhat hijacked by um, people talk about, you know, the problem, the, the idea of freedom of speech is to reveal truths. And then the philosophers get caught up on the idea it's to reveal objective truth, what I call the big T truths, that the form of the truth, the platonic form of the truth, which allowed for postmodernists to come in and say, well, since that actually isn't knowable, then free speech isn't that important because we can't know objective truth anyway. So therefore, speech doesn't matter. Now, that's a terrible idea, in my opinion, because it fails to recognize that consistently throughout history, the best value of freedom of speech are what I call the small T truths. This person doesn't like me. This person's dishonest. I think this person is a jerk. This country, does, uh, the, the, the prices of corn is, is this price over here. It's all of this um, c conveyance of simple mundane truths about what people think and what their attitudes are. So I actually see, if you define low value speech as someone saying something horrible or hateful, I think of that to have value in that I now know that you have horrible and hateful views. This is very important information to have to correctly navigate your world, to know what people actually think 
think will help you better navigate the world. And if you don't know it, you're left somewhat blind. Either you assume that the world is fine because nobody's saying the hateful things without knowing that they might be, you know, be secretly Nazis, or you think the world is much, much worse that even these very nice people are actually thinking horrible things. They're just not allowed to say it. So the simple, ex uh, the simple idea that it helps us better understand the world we live in to let people express the, their ideas is something I keep on finding myself coming back to. I just add a footnote to that, John, before we move to the next question. Can you tolerate that? Sure. Um, which is, I'd also point out that it's a mistake to think that because a government is not regulating low value speech, that low value speech is unregulated. Liberal science is, in fact, exceedingly good at distinguishing low value speech from high value speech. And if you want to test that, you know, if you're a biologist, for example, on a university faculty, try submitting to a journal, a publication that refutes someone else's scientific work by saying, this person's a fucking asshole. <laughs> and you'll find you won't get very far with that. You'll be marginalized instantly. So um, this, is, this speech is actually very effectively regulated by the intellectual regime we have. Well, I would respond with a, a very brief story, which is I <clears throat> complained to my colleague uh, uh, Walter Olson up here one day about the comments section in a Washington Post story. And he replied to me, if you think that's bad, you should go to the YouTube comments sections. They are like Plato's Symposium. <laughs> the Washington Post is like Plato's Symposium compared to YouTube. So I've stayed away from the YouTube comments section. Uh, the gentleman here was first, and then we'll go up the aisle. Thanks, Jonathan. That was completely convincing, as always. Might you apply your keen analysis globally for a moment? How might one perhaps address what could be described as Exhibit A, and that might be Germany's prohibition of Holocaust deniers. Um, this is Derek Liebert. It's nice to see you. Um, distinguished author in his own right. And, um, you know, I am not a super hardliner all the time on free speech. I will, people will use it against me, but I will confess that France and Canada and Britain, which have hate speech laws, I think they're misguided laws. I think they'd be better off without them but they have not wrecked those countries. Um, and I think one reason for that is that people like me and others try to be fairly vigilant. Um, in the case of Germany and Jews and Holocaust deniers, I think that law is probably a bad idea. And I think today it's almost certainly unnecessary, but I'm not going to run around. It's not going to be priority one for me. Um, because of Germany's unique history. I'm going to be more interested in figuring out what we can do when the U.S. Justice Department sends out a memo effectively requiring universities to classify uh, asking for a date as a form of sexual harassment. So does it bother me? Yeah, a bit in a German context. Am I going to like go ballistic? No. I, 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 I get asked that a lot. It's like, oh, Mr. Academic Freedom Guy, what, how, what about Holocaust denial? And overall, what it comes down to, I do trust in liberal science in a lot of ways. And I think that Holocaust denial does a lot better when you don't have to defend it. If you're going to come in and say, and I think that if you're whispering at someone's ears that this didn't really happen, then you have a chance of getting someone to believe it. If you have to stand up in front of a crowd and try to explain using, I don't know what, to, to explain that the Holocaust didn't happen, good luck with that. So I think that actually it's one of those ideas that is such a terrible idea. I don't, I think you're giving it, I, I think that Germany in some ways is giving it too much credit to stand up um, on its own um, it, to, to, to liberal science, to, to public criticism, because it's, 
not true. It's completely fabricated. It doesn't hold up to scrutiny. And the only way it can succeed is by not being allowed to be challenged. Yeah, I, I want to agree with that. And just for the record, make very clear that what I'm not super upset about is Holocaust denial laws in Germany. Anywhere else, especially here, absolutely not. Terrible idea. Woman on the aisle. And again, please identify yourself unless you don't want to. <laughs> you can have anonymous speech here. Hi, my name is Ellen Murphy, and I just wanted to ask about um, free speech zones. Basically, how big should they be, and uh, isn't it kind of a problem when they are, uh, should they be at all? And if, if, if so, then why are they always where the people that you're trying to reach don't hear you like at political conventions. <laughs> yep. They're they're kind of sent eight miles away from uh, where anybody would even be. Um, they're not free speech if the people you're trying to reach aren't hearing you. And I'm I'm just I don't know how else, how better else to put that, but that's what I'm wondering about. Or anyone who wants to answer. You want that one first, Greg? I think we're going to say the same thing, which is I think the appropriate size of a free speech zone would be approximately from the Pacific to the Atlantic <laughs> and the north to the south. Um, and I'm guessing Greg will, will give the same answer. I don't really get the free speech zone thing and why colleges feel they need to do that. I, I unfortunately do just from a lawyer standpoint, which is that you take reasonable restrictions like not having a rock concert at three o'clock in the morning. And that actually literally comes from a case called Ward v. Rock Against Racism. And it shows this human, this human nature that you have to make exceptions to free speech as narrow as possible, because as much as we think we like free speech, people in power will take any exception they can get and run with it. And that's exactly what's happened with time, place, and manner restrictions. Um, and it's not just on college campuses. Uh, it, it, it's happening all over, the, all over the country where they will say, okay, you know, there, there's supposed to be reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions, and that means we're going to limit it to what, one case that we had early on at, at, at Texas Tech. It was a 20-foot-wide gazebo for all students at Texas Tech, 20 feet wide for 28,000 students. And this included handing out uh, newspapers, handing out flyers, laughably unconstitutional. I even had a friend do a dimensional analysis of it, and he worked out that you'd have to crush all the students down to the density of uranium-238 <laughs> if you wanted to fit them all in the gazebo. Um, the, these are absolute parodies of, of, uh, of what the law is supposed to mean. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court has not been clear enough on what a reasonable time, place, and manner restriction is. And they need to be much more expansive about it because, you know, the devil is in the details. Uh, you, but these university codes, by the way, the university speech zones, they do get laughed out of court. That, that, that gazebo did not stand up to legal scrutiny, nor did the University of Cincinnati one. And the Modesto Junior College one isn't. What scares me more is that you have students who will be sent to the free speech zone by someone in power and think that that's okay, that, that, that they're supposed to be good little boys and girls and actually get to, into their little tiny corner to express themselves. Gentleman here in the second row, looking on the left side a little bit. Thank you all very much. My name is Richard Ranger, um, and I'm going to speak not on behalf of my alma mater, but rather suspecting it's on fire's list. I, I, I'm a graduate <laughs> of Dartmouth, and... Um, is there a place, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, I, I know about Dartmouth's speech codes, but in, in the interests of what I'm going to call, quote unquote, civil society, small, small c, small s, does a person who's a dorm uh, RA have the ability to talk to a student and say, you know, your action against Jonathan 
yep. is, is, is unfair or unreasonable or something like that or knock it off? In other words, is there a space for private action to counsel, to encourage changes in behavior or something like that, whether it be in a, on a campus or in a business or in some other environment? Yeah. The, the, the quick answer to that is it depends on how much it looks like official um, punishment. Um, so definitely we've had cases where someone's just been told, you know, if it's an R and it, and it, it, and it bears relationship to in our analysis to how high up the chain you're going. So, for example, Graham Spanier, it, you, you know, when, when there was a Republican, uh, a, the Republican student group at Penn State decided to have a Halloween party in which a bunch of people came up dressed as Nazis. And yeah, great idea. And the, these pictures ended up on, online, and Graham Spanier said, you know, I absolutely defend your right to do this, but I'm going to criticize you for it. And he, he had some, and that, and that was fine as far as we were concerned. But there are other situations where, for example, Harvard, um, the Harbus, uh, at the Harvard Business School, the, the student newspaper, they ran a cartoon that was critical of the fact that the computers all, all failed on interview week. And they brought the um, uh, the cartoonist and the editor of the newspaper into in for a discussion. But that discussion included, um, you're going to be held accountable next time this happens. Um, this is going to be on you. Uh, it was something that, that crossed a line into threats of uh, threats of punishment. I do think that there is there is room in the middle where you can say, listen, you're being a you know you're being a jerk. You're not, we're not going to punish you for it. But for goodness sakes, think about what you do. I think w those kind of cases are not cases that fire gets in, fire gets involved with. I do, however, caution that I think we on campuses in particular we've somewhat over exercised. Uh, that instinct. Um, so I, I get, in some ways, I, 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 I always try to tell people in some cases before they do that kind of stuff, take a deep breath and think about stuff in context. Because if anything, I feel like we might be overreacting to speech, but certainly having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone saying, listen, you know, say, saying essentially, it's like, listen, do you think about like how, you know, Janet or Eddie feels about what you just said is, is fine. Rafael De Janeiro. Um, on campus and elsewhere, are there good sort of model codes? It astounds me that that there's this that so many campuses have stupid unconstitutional policies. Shouldn't some group have devised a model code that has a lot of agreement, if not universal, and it could be instituted and even beyond campus, other uh, other uh, sources of of sort of model codes of people who've kind of worked through the issues. Well, um, the, the American, uh, the American college association came up with a model code that I recommend to people all the time and came up with in the nineties. And it's a very free speech protective code. And we're also working on a, on a model due process code, um, about, uh, what the kind of due process protections people should get. We've been a little bit hesitant to write university codes for them, but we have been willing, uh, and, and very successful, by the way, in printing booklets and, and having university administrators come to us to make sure that their codes are compliant with the First Amendment. So believe it or not, that 62% uh, that, that I showed, that's an improvement. We have twice as many green light schools as we used to, primarily because they would come to, uh, universities will actually come and ask for FIRE's advice once they realize that we actually do want more green light schools. We don't think speech codes, we don't want to just uh, always defeat them. We, we, if universities are willing to voluntarily change, that's wonderful. Gentleman in the middle in the blue shirt. Yaroslav um, Martinuk, I'm a retired sociologist. Uh, in Europe, uh, 
eight speech codes have focused on uh, have focused on criticism of Islam. Uh, if you say anything negative or critical of Islam, you are you could face an arrest warrant or persecution. And as a number of uh, high-profile individuals in Europe, ranging from back from Oriana Falaci, Brigitte Bardot, Marine Le Pen, and then Geert Wilders, uh, Lech Walesa, Wolf Sabatish, the uh, and list is endless. My question is: Is there is the U.S. going down the same path in emulating hate speech codes? In general, no. Um, we stand in an unusual place because of the First Amendment and because the courts have been really quite protective of the First Amendment. So I'm not worried about explicit measures in the U.S. Um, I do, of course, worry about implicit and problems and, and chilling effects, but no, I, I don't see us going the way of, of Europe on that. Do others have other views? Uh, I, I wrote a big piece in the um, uh, in the Huffington Post when when there was a lot of backlash after the innocence of Muslims video, um, and I and I think I agree with Jonathan that I don't think the country on the whole is going that way. But one thing that was really disappointing when that came out, but not by absolutely no surprise to me, was how many academics came out and said, "Aha, this proves that free speech is wrong, and Americans are backwards for believing in it." And like how quickly they ran out to basically be, want to be ahead of this. Finally, ah, our First Amendment has been proven wrong. I think that, and those attitudes can bleed into um, the, the law over, over time. And I think they've somewhat have bled over to with regards to crazy speech codes and crazy time, place, and manner stuff. So I'm. I think we're in. A, I, I don't. I don't see those kind of hate speech laws happening any anytime soon. But I do worry that they, if they have such moral resonance on college campuses, how uh, if that's going to eventually change? I can't help but mention at this point that this very day I'm set to sign a contract with uh, the Danish editor of a newspaper that published the Muslim cartoons in 2006. And about a year from now, Cato will publish the book called The Tyranny of Silence by that editor which is a robust case against these kinds of protections and uh, the, an examination of the, the 2006 events. I have to say uh, a couple of things about that. One is, in his recounting of the 2006, it is true that there were things that really nobody defends happened, which was some, one of the illustrators was very nearly killed uh, because of doing it, because of the illustration that appeared, which was uh, interpreted as anti-Muslim. <laughs> Uh, however, the Danish government itself did not try to prevent the newspaper from publishing the cartoons or did not punish the, car the cartoonist or the paper afterwards. The second thing about the book that I think is very interesting and re replies to your question is uh, this editor sees the United States as taking exactly the right role or the right position over time about hate speech and related issues. And it's a, a striking book that holds up the United States as basically getting it right, and, uh, and that Europe should emulate the United States on these issues. So that's my marketing ploy. In a year, <laughs> you'll have a book, The Tyranny of Silence. Gentlemen on the aisle, third, three up. Thank you. Uh, my, my question comes at a perfect juncture because it has to do with how viable is the concept of liberal science when there is a tyranny of silence? And I'm thinking about the silence 
that greets us every time somebody on the far right spews some incendiary rhetoric about American Muslims. There is almost nothing to, uh, you hear almost no voices defending American Muslims. They're just all categorized as jihadists. What? Sorry, that's not my experience at all. Just wanted to say that, first of all. Um, you didn't follow the response to Mr. Klagman's comments over the weekend? Mr. There was no response for all practical purposes. I, I do follow Twitter, and believe me, what, what, when it comes to someone saying that something that is very sort of Islamophobic, as in like Muslims are bad people, I watch the, the backlash, and it's pretty robust. The idea that, there's, that this is happening entirely in a vacuum is not, has not been my experience at all. In fact, actually, no, I'll go, I'll go a step further. On college campuses, I've seen, I, I've seen a lot of instances where people have gotten uh, in trouble for being, in, in my opinion, actually quite mildly crit critical of Islam. There was a case at Tufts University where it, that involved quote, qu uh, quotes of the Quran, um, talking about the fact that uh, some very sad percentage of, of uh, women in Saudi Arabia are allowed to drive, and they actually got in trouble for publishing this. Um, so, I, as I said, that has not been my experience. I don't, I, the, the, the silence... I, I, and certainly, you know, if you, if you follow social media, it's, it's hard to think that there's not enough counter speech going on. I agree with that as an empirical matter. To generalize the, the question, uh, what do you do about the tyranny of silence? Well, we lived through that, um, gay people. There was no one defending us for long periods of time. No one dared to. If they were seen as taking up our cause, they were friends of the perverts and threats to our children. And you fight the tyranny of silence the way Frank Kameny did. And it's never easy, but it's easier with a liberal regime far easier and far more effective than any else. One more question. Bob, fourth man up. All right on the aisle. Mr. Corn Rivera. Uh, hi, Bob Corn Rivera, Davis Wright, Tremaine. Uh, Jonathan, I very much look forward to reading your new afterward. I think that your book is one of the most influential I've read on reasons for free expression. And I Thank take you. your point about reasons for optimism when you look at what's happened with speech by and about uh, gay people. But going back to one of the central themes of your book from 1993 is that one of the biggest dangers to free inquiry is fundamentalism. Uh, fundamentalism being broadly defined as anyone who is absolutely convinced that they couldn't possibly be wrong. <laughs> it doesn't have to be religious fundamentalism. By that standard, how do you think we're doing today? <laughs> um, yeah, I use fundamentalism. It's a word I hijack in my book for an attitude, which is that, uh, the inability to take seriously the possibility that you might be wrong. Uh, I think human beings do pretty badly on that score because most of us are pretty sure of ourselves. And in fact, most of us remain sure of ourselves no matter how often we're proved wrong in the past. Um, and I don't know that that situation's gotten any worse or any better. But the answer to that is not to turn everybody into some kind of, you know, extremely flexible, non-dogmatic person. Dogma and, and inflexibility are often very good at the individual level because they drive people to defend their ideas very, very robustly. I never met anyone more dogmatic than Frank Kameny <laughs> in some ways. One of the things he was, he was often heard saying was... When society and I disagree about something, I'll always give society's point of view a second look. And if on second look, I still think society is wrong, then society had better get out of my way. <laughs> That's almost a direct quote. Um, that is how he sounded. And so you, 
You want individuals to robustly defend their point of view, but you want them to be do that within the context of a social system that pits their prejudices and their fundamentalisms against each other. Just as in a political system, you want to force compromise, and in an economic system, you want to force trades or enable trades. So the question is, is the system still forcing, doing a pretty good job of pitting these views against each other? I'd argue yes, and in some ways better than ever. On that note, we have run out of time. I, for my part, am very certain that we've had a great event here, that this is book, Kindly Inquisitors, merits your attention, merits your purchasing it. You'll enjoy it, whether in its first edition or in the new ebook edition, which, again, you can get this flyer outside, go to the website, and get a hefty discount on getting that afterward that everyone is talking about. Uh, I'd like to thank our commentators today, Brian and Greg, for a, an excellent uh, overview. And uh, above all, I would like to thank John for writing this book, for returning to it here at Cato. And one last word in praise of my uh, boss, David Bowes, for bringing it to the Cato Institute and making a real contribution. Could to I also recognize speech. one more person who's here? We can recognize as many as you want. I'm just going to embarrass someone. Catherine Shevchenko is here. She's a lawyer on the fire team who... Back in March was the person who originally suggested that it was time to reissue and update this book. So all of this happened as a result of that suggestion. And this is my opportunity to embarrass her. <laughs> <laughs>